God, you have walked with your children through the ages. You're walking with Luca. We, too, want Jesus to walk with us. We have to get this straight. If we're wrong here, we're wrong everywhere. Make it clear. Your teaching this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Frederick Beekner, in his book, Magnificent Defeat, tells a story that he believes is a parable of our age. It's a true story. And he puts it this way. It is almost too awful to tell about a boy of 12 or 13 who, in a fit of crazy anger and depression, got hold of a gun somewhere and fired it at his father, who died not right away, but soon afterward. When the authorities asked the boy why he had done it, He said that it was because he could not stand his father. Because his father demanded too much from him. Because he was always after him. Because he hated his father. And then later on, after he had been placed in the house of detention somewhere, a guard was walking down the corridor late one night. When he heard sounds from the boy's room and he stopped to listen, the words that he heard the boy sobbing out in the dark were, I want my father. I want my father. When I read that story, I tell you what, it cut me to the quick. Have we done the same? Have we? Our world our society, have we killed off our Father? And now we weep for Him. I want my Father. I want my Father. Makes you wonder. Do you suppose that's true of atheism as well? Although no doubt, I'm sure atheism would protest that you cannot want what does not exist. But sometimes I wonder if it doth protest too loudly. The atheist writer Sam Harris, in his book, Letter to a Christian Nation, references the Holocaust, where six million Jews perished. He talks about the Rwandan genocide where 800,000 perished. He references the smallpox epidemic during the 20th century where a half a billion human beings died. And then he drives home his point. I need you to catch that point. I need you to ponder it very carefully now. Take out your study guide, please. In your worship bulletin today, there is a study guide. You're going to want this one. Take it out. If you didn't, didn't get one when you came in or several of you came to one with only one bulletin between you, hold your hands up. 
Would you hand up our ushers? We'll get it to you right now. And those of you who are watching on television, we're delighted to have you. I want you to have this study guide too. You're joining us in series, in process. This is a series called Primetime. Let me put it on the screen for you. Primetime. The website is there at the bottom of the screen. You see it? www.pmchurch.tv Go to that website. You're looking for Primetime. This is part nine, so we're nearing the end of this series. But this particular teaching is entitled, Is God to Blame? So look for that title, and then it says Study Guide right there. You click on and you will have the same study guide that we are going to carefully ponder together. Because I want to start out with the words of the atheist, Sam Harris. All right, so you see it right there at the top of your study guide? Everybody get one up in the balcony? How about an overflow? Everybody, please, ask the usher for a study guide. Can't wait, though. Got to go, so let's go. First quotation, Sam Harris, the atheist, he writes, Of course, people of all faiths regularly assure one another that God is not responsible for human suffering. But how else can we understand the claim that God is both omniscient, that would be all-knowing, and omnipotent, all-powerful? This is the age-old question of, write it down, theodicy. Write it down. This is the age-old question of theodicy, of course, and we should consider it solved. Harris says, hey, I've already figured it out. I got it. Let me tell you how it goes. Here he goes. If God exists, either he can do nothing to stop the most egregious calamities or he doesn't care to. God, therefore, is either impotent or evil. Write that in. He is either impotent or evil. Who wants a God like that? Ergo, there is no God. Now, just keep your pen moving because you need to understand this word theodicy. It's a Greek a compound word, theos, God, plus dike. That's justice. It means defending a good God in an evil world. Fill that in. Defending a good God in an evil world. Now, let's listen to a theist, Gregory A. Boyd, whose book, Provided the title for this teaching, Is God to Blame? Go to Amazon.com next week. Ask for the book. A powerful treatment of theodicy. Is God to Blame? Gregory Boyd. These are his words. They're in your study guide. Put it on the screen. One of the chief problems in the Western philosophical tradition is reconciling the presence of evil with an all-good and an all-powerful God. The problem, in a nutshell, is this. If God is all-powerful, it seems he must have the ability to stop evil if he wants to. And if God is all-good, it seems he would want to. Yet, evil persists. Write it down. Evil persists. What are we going to say? There isn't a one of us here today who has not suffered deeply. Oh, I think there are probably a few of us who haven't yet. I want to say to you who are young enough not to have suffered deeply, don't you worry. Don't you worry. Thank you, Luca, for that testimony. Don't you worry. Your turn will come. You can't get out of this life without suffering deeply. A friend of mine years ago sent me a cartoon out of the New Yorker magazine. It's a picture of a preacher behind his pulpit in his clerical robe. He's got his hand up to his neck and he says, we have gathered this morning because we have had it up to here. There isn't an atheist alive who hasn't had it up to here. There isn't a theist alive who hasn't had it up to here. So what should we do with the evidence? How could there be a God with such Awful suffering here below. And if there were a God, who would want Him? 
How should this primetime generation respond? I'm talking to you prime timers. You're going to have to face this. This may be the toughest question you face. But I'm depending on you to tell the story. You see, there's a story. Most people don't know the story. But if you master the story, you can tell the truth. I have faith that God, through you, will tell that truth. Before we get to the story, I want to share one very short and simple line from Holy Scripture. Open your Bible. There's a pew Bible in front of you if you didn't bring a Bible because you need to see it. This is a very short sentence, but I need you please to look at it. The book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. If you didn't bring your own Bible, the pew Bible is page 774. 774. Find the book of 1 Corinthians. This is the great love chapter of all of Holy Scripture. There's no literature Quite like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I want to begin in verse 1. You'll see the short sentence in a moment. Can't miss it. But let's begin in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 13. By the way, I'm in the New King James today. If you grab the Pew Bible, you'll have the same translation. But any Bible you have is fine with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Verse 3, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Verse 4, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. Hold it right there. Hit the pause button. That's as far as we need to go. Write it down. Three words. Love suffers long. Would you write that down, please? Love suffers long. The question is, how long? Any defense of a good God in an evil world must tell this story. So I share it with you today. Memorize it, please. Once upon a time, there was a very loving father and a very happy family. A very close family composed of all the father's children. Some of his children were angels. You can call them seraphim. You can call them cherubim. They lived directly in the father's house with him. But he had other children, intelligent creatures, intelligent beings who lived in little terrestrial planets sprawling all over the Father's universe. But it was a very happy family with a very loving father, like the father you grew up with or perhaps didn't. Then one day this father held a private council with his two divine Partners, as the heads of families often do, no children, please. And in that private council, the three determined to create a new order of intelligent life within a tiny solar system embedded near the edge of a galaxy called the Milky Way. This new race of beings would be created in their image the Father's image, and would be granted the power of procreation that the angelic order did not enjoy. 
When the plan was announced to the family, there was great joy because all families live by that adage, don't they? The more, the merrier. Within uh, limits, of course. I say there was great joy except for one. It was the eldest in the family. The highest and the brightest of them all. An archangel called the Son of the Dawn. Beautiful, handsome being. His Latinized name, Lucifer. For some mysterious reason, all too familiar now to us who are also infected with the insanity of pride, Lucifer was hurt that he had been left out of so strategic an initiative as the creation of a new order of intelligent life. After all, he is the mighty covering cherub. He stands the closest to the eternal of all created life, next to the throne itself. It is an immensely tragic story. This story of eventual rebellion within the family of the father. Or how could a perfect home, come on, explain this to me. How could a perfect home be shattered by a heretofore perfect child? How is it possible? How can it be explained that the child you love so dearly is able to break your heart so deeply? How does it keep happening? And yet, if we would ever tell the truth about a good God in an evil world, if theodicy would be our mission, we have to know this story. A story told four passages from the ancient Scripture. I want to share those four with you there in your study guide. These aren't the whole passages. I've just summarized them, pulling words out of those passages so that you get the gist. Let's start with that first one. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. How does it go? Here's the summation. How are you fallen from heaven? Whatever this is, it started in the house of the Father. How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? For you have said in your heart, I will be like the Most High. Now I want you to try to wrap your puny mind around that thought. How could a little boy possibly usurp the position and prerogatives of his own father? It is not only logically impossible, it is existentially insane for the creature to wish to become the one that created it. You can't do it. I suppose you can want. And he did. Next passage, Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 17. You were the anointed cherub who covers the throne, leaning right over the throne in the presence of the Almighty. You were the, you were the anointed cherub who covers the throne on the holy mountain of God. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity. Write that down. Iniquity was found in you and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you out. I tell you what, living in a world of programmed obsolescence as you and I do, where everything created by manufacturers is designed to break down in a short enough life so that you have to come back for more. In a world of programmed obsolescence, it is impossible for us to imagine a flawless creation. Lucifer was without flaw, but he was also free. And therein lies the mystery of this tragic Tragic story. 
Jot it down. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 12. Can you believe this? And war, war broke out in heaven. So that the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, was cast to the earth and his angels with him. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath. Great wrath. He is furious. By the way, I need to tell you this. No sooner was that, was, was that intelligent life form called the human being created on this terrestrial ball we call home and earth. No sooner had that life form of intelligence been created than a voting booth. We've just come out of something called voting, haven't we? A voting booth is established and placed in the garden home of the first two of this intelligent race. The voting booth is there for two reasons. Number one, it's an act of fairness on the part of the Father who says, I'm not going to limit you. You may have access to this brand new creation, but you may only have access here. You cannot slither through the garden. Only in one place will I put that booth. In fairness to the rebel, you may try to woo their vote, but there's a second reason it's there. All the universe wishes to know, will this new life form stay with the Father? And so Adam and Eve are instructed, you're safe in this garden. There's only one place you must not go. It's a voting booth. If you step into that place and pull the lever, you have voted for the fallen one. And it's over. Woe to you, earth, for the devil has come down to you. Final passage, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Let's summarize it with these words. Then the spirit, then the serpent, rather, said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree? You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of this tree, you will be just like God. The original sin is now sown. On the original planet, you'll be like God. So she took its fruit and also gave of it to her husband. And they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. End quote. Try to picture that moment, if we can. Having just come out of a hard-fought, hotly contested presidential election. We all know, we all know that in every election... There is a winner and there is a loser. And no matter how you voted, even if you voted for the winner, when the loser makes his concession speech, you can only imagine the awful sense of rejection in that heart. Imagine how the father felt that day in Eden when they tabulated the ballots. And it's 2 zero. They're going with Lucifer. C.S. Lewis was an atheist. Brilliant. And he read the Bible. And eventually became a Christian. In his classic, apologist, uh, his classic apology called Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis, by the way, an atheist, became probably the most brilliant apologist of the 20th century. In his classic defense of the Christian faith called Mere Christianity... He makes this point 
Put it on the screen. It's there in your study guide. One of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was, was that it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he was created and went wrong. Christianity agrees with dualism that this universe is at war. Dualism is a form of philosophy that suggests, no, we actually have two eternal powers. One is eternally good and the other is eternally evil. And all of history is the conflict of these two. Christianity says, oh, you're right, the universe is at war. War, but it's not because they're equal. Christianity does not think this is a war between independent powers. Write it down. It thinks this is a civil war. A rebellion. And that we are living in, a part, in the part of the universe occupied by the rebel. And there was war in heaven. And there is now war on earth. And the pictures of the bloody and evil carnage are written large across the canvas of this earth's history. Love suffers long. Now look, this story that we're sharing right now, if the story is true, that Lucifer rebelled against his father, and he shattered the peaceful tranquility of heaven, and then deceived the fledgling human race into joining him in his rebellion. Here's the question. Write it down. Why didn't God just go out and shoot him? Get it over with. Who can forget, forget this, this emotive photograph from the Vietnam War years ago, and if you're a baby boomer, you know this photograph, where a suspected Viet Cong collaborator is taken out into the streets of Saigon and summarily executed. I mean, what if God had summarily executed his eldest child in the same way? And you know why? You're at it, God, throw in Adam and Eve. Let's just get this whole mess over with. Then... The universe could have returned to peace again. Happy days, hallelujah, are here again. There'd be no more trouble in the universe, right? Wrong. You're bright enough, we are bright enough to know. It cannot be. In fact, jot this down. Because the great and compelling truth about love is that in order for it to be love, it must not only grant you the right to say yes, it must also grant and give you the right to say no. Otherwise, it is not love. It is force. God could not execute Lucifer. It would have been force. And jot this down. A universe of force is a universe of fear. Gregory Boyd is absolutely right. You see that sentence in your study guide? If love is the end, freedom must be the means to that end. So, ladies and gentlemen, a loving God has absolutely no choice. He has to let this awful rebellion play out to its tragic end. Otherwise, he risks rebellion age after age after age. There's a fascinating... I'm looking forward to sharing this with you. A fascinating angle that I'd never seen before in this question of free choice that Gregory Boyd brings, 
out in his book is God to blame. And it's in your study guide. Just get the first line down and then I'm going to tell you the rest. It's called the, the theory of chaos, the chaos theory. Jot this down. A recent development in science, chaos theory, highlights the interconnected complexity of life and the impossibility of our ever exhaustively comprehending it. So did you write that down? It's called chaos theory. Now let me tell you what this chaos theory is. And I'm not a scientist, but here's the thought. Apparently, nature is so intricately interwoven that an interference of the process of nature here can eventually create an effect in nature over here. And the scientists call it the butterfly effect. And here, here's, the, here's the illustration. A butterfly in Brazil. Any of you from Brazil? A butterfly in Brazil flaps its wing. And just by the movement of the atoms of air, that choice spills and spills and spills until a hurricane is created from the butterfly's wing. A hurricane in the Caribbean. The intricate connection of a complex process where the variations in that process in one point affect the process in another point. In fact, we can illustrate it this way. Everybody loves a placid pond. And when you see a placid pond, the, the, the first inst instinct is to reach down and grab a little pebble and throw that pebble out onto those glassy, uh, that glassy surface. What happens when the pebble splashes? What happens? It creates a ripple. And a ripple. Isn't that right? Little concentric ripples and ripples and ripples. And by the way, if that pond were a thousand miles across, those ripples would go for a thousand miles. Can't see them now, but they just keep going. Isn't that true? And by the way, if you throw a pebble in and you get those ripples, and I'm on the other side of the pond, and I then throw in my pebble, and it creates ripples, you get a matrix of ripples, because my ripples will bump into yours and create a third set, a whole new combination. And they bump in, and you see how it goes. Our free choice is like that pebble in a pond. So a man one day goes into a bar. Free choice. Wrong choice, by the way, but free. He goes into a bar. He orders a drink. Wrong choice, but free choice. He orders more than one drink. Until finally he's inebriated. Free choice, free choice, free choice. Finally he pushes away from the counter, stumbles back to the parking lot, and gets into his car. Free choice. Inebriated, he drives down the road. Free choice. Losing control of his mind, he crosses the center line. Free choice. And slams into an automobile carrying a mother and two children. Free choice. All three are instantly slain. Innocent victims of a series of free choices. You say, oh, come on, Dwight. You know what we really need to do is we need to, we, we need to limit that man's free choices before he gets into that kind of trouble. Ladies and gentlemen, may I remind you that to deny the man those free choices ahead of time would be to incarcerate him all the time. And God is not willing to pay that price. I will have to let the free choices go. I'm sorry. You got caught in the matrix. Boom. Free choice. Love suffers long.
Boyd goes on, jot this down. Because love requires choice. Humans and angels have the power to affect others for better or for worse. Indeed, every decision we make affects other agents in some measure. We are the heirs to an incomprehensibly vast array of human, angelic, and natural ripples throughout the history about which we know next to nothing, but which nevertheless significantly affect our lives. End quote. Ladies and gentlemen, let's be clear about this. All human suffering is not the consequence of personal choice. Two Sundays ago, a dear friend of mine died. Bright, gifted church administrator. Husband, father, young grandfather, 61 years old. Do you think my friend Jerry Potzer chose the cancer that cut him down in the end? Of course not. All human suffering is not the consequence of personal choice, but all suffering is the consequence of free choices. Free choices. A series of concentric ripples that the Bible traces back to the source of all chaos, the source of all suffering, human and creaturely, that dark and fallen archangel that the Hebrew calls the adversary. In the Hebrew, Satan. We call him Satan. That one. But because of his free choice, rejects the Father's love and plunges him, not only himself, but the entire household of the Father in heaven and on earth into incomprehensible suffering. Gregory Boyd writes, though we can't know the why of any particular instance of suffering, we can and must know that our whole environment is under siege. Under siege by forces that hate God and all that is good. End quote. By the way, it's for that reason, ladies and gentlemen, that we live today with hospices and hospitals. Ever heard of those? We live today with divorce courts and penitentiaries. We live today with mortuaries and cemeteries. We live today with sexual perversions and moral dysfunctions. Because of that free choice, we live today With hearts that are broken, minds that are broken, bodies that are broken, and entire creation broken. Because once upon a time, a pebble was dropped in the water of free choice. And the ripples still go on. The demonic angel... who has wrought this bloody and baleful harvest on this planet, is really rather brilliant. And I've got I to gotta share this with you before I sit down. He's brilliant. He has come up with a cocktail of three multiple choice questions. Brilliant. He doesn't matter who, it doesn't matter to him who you are. Let's say you're a believer. So his deception for you is blame God. And look what's happening. How could God do this to me? How could He do this to us? Blame God. Reminds me of an arsonist who torches the house, stands in the middle of the flames, and then points up and says, He did it. Okay. It's a cocktail of deceptions. Deception one is for those who believe. Blame God. Deception two is for those who do not believe. No God. No God. 
This is just a brutal reaping of random natural chance. I'm sorry it ends this way. You're stuck on this planet. You had the luck to be born. No God. Now, most people stop right there. But this cocktail is so potent. There's a third option. He doesn't want you to know the third option. If he can get the second deception clear in your mind, you ipso facto have to embrace the third one, though you don't think about it. And the third one is this. No God, no devil. There is no devil. There is no devil. You can't, you can't just blame this on some imp with red horns and a pitchfork tail. There is no devil. You're too smart for that. Why does he want no devil? Because if man has no God and no devil, man becomes his own God and his own worst enemy. Deadly cocktail. Take all three. Take one. Take two. It doesn't matter to the brilliant genius of evil that Jesus nailed Without apology, when he spoke these words in Matthew 13, write them down. An enemy has done this. This is the work of an enemy. This is the work of an enemy. And all the while, love suffers long. How long? Ask that of the God who died on the middle cross. You got an argument? You ask that of the God who died on the middle cross. Ask Him how long love is supposed to suffer. Ask Him how deep is the suffering. Go to the God on the center cross and inquire. How can this be? A hundred years ago, a little classic called Education. The words are in your study guide. I'll put it on the screen for you as well. Few give thought to the suffering that sin has caused our Creator All heaven suffered in Christ's agony, but that suffering did not begin or end with His manifestation in humanity. It didn't start when He became a baby and end when He rose. Are you kidding? The line, the next line, the cross is a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception, sin has brought to the heart of God. He has been suffering and suffering and suffering. As the whole creation groans and travails in pain together, The heart of the infinite Father is pained in sympathy. Never forget it. Love suffers long. I know it's not, I know it doesn't make a sense, a a whit of sense to an atheist. And I must confess to you that it barely makes sense to a theist. This idea of the God of the universe on that center cross and eternally sacrificing Himself for a rebel race. It makes no sense at all. But if you ever, if you ever engage in theodicy, you cannot leave the story of Calvary out of that exchange. God is forever changed. He will never again be the same. He's bound to the heart of a planet that has suffered long itself. 
Love suffers long. And it will continue to suffer long until the last free choice is made. And by the way, may I remind you this? The ultimate free choice in the universe was the choice of God to come down. Not just suffer with us. Not just suffer because of us. But to suffer for us. So that by believing in Him, we who were born atheists, born without hope, born without promise, born with only despair, our final end, so that because of Him, we might believe and live in His family one day forever and ever. Amen. I want to read you a poem written after the carnage of the First World War by one who experienced it. An Englishman named Edward Shalito. He was meditating one day after the awful war to end all wars. And he was reading the story about the resurrected Christ revealing himself to his disciples by showing them his wounds. And so he wrote this poem entitled The, the Jesus, Jesus of the Scars. Here it is. If we have never sought... We seek Thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn marks on Thy brow. We must have Thee, O Jesus of the scars. The heavens frighten us. They are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by Thy scars, we know Thy grace. If when the doors are shut... Thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou dost stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but Thou alone. Let us pray. Not a God has wounds, O God, but You alone. Please, help us to tell the story with enough clarity and conviction that you might, through that humble retelling, tug at a heart that has not believed yet. Holy Father, we say yet. Because if love is long-suffering, then we, like Your love, can wait. 
that through its long-suffering expression, we might yet share the joy of the Father who has created us all. In Christ's name, we thank you. Amen.